All right, good evening. Is that close enough? It's close enough, right? The mic. It's good. Everybody can hear me? Okay. All right. Everybody have a good day? Bellies are well fed. Time to fall asleep. Earlier uh, in my ministry, I used to have to edit my sermons before I put them on the web. So I'd do that Tuesday morning when I came in for my day off. And I'd be listening to my sermon and doing things on the computer and I'd fall asleep. So <laughs> to my own sermon. So if you do, uh, if you do, I won't blame you. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. And then if you have any of these helpful bookmarks, you can put one in Mark 14. Uh, the two passages are related and similar in their chronology. Mark adds a few details that I want us to see. So we'll be in Luke 22 first, then Mark 14, and then back to Luke 22. Luke 22, the key portion here, verses 31 to 34. Jesus speaks to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times, uh, denied three times that you know me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into your wisdom in these events, in your discipleship of Peter, and also wisdom into how you work in our lives as well. Lord, I pray that you would reveal our hearts to us. Show us, Lord, if there's any wicked way in them. And Lord, that you would change us and mold us. Produce humility in us, Lord, so that we can be useful for you and for your kingdom. Lord, we pray that your word would speak to us tonight. And as always, Lord, I ask for your help. Thank you for each one here. We pray you'd be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're jumping into the next scene that I believe best highlights the unique discipleship process for Peter. And as we Again, in the last message, we have to realize that a lot has transpired between Mark 8 and this event here. We jump in here to Jesus' last week. He's been in Jerusalem for the week, has confronted the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The hostility towards him is at an all-time high. And the next day, in the early hours of the day, he will be tried, sentenced, and then, in the daylight, he will be crucified. Jesus is on his last night and day. So much happens on this night. John records for us the upper room discourse where he says so many critical things to his disciples. Here, the Last Supper is instituted in Luke 22, 14 through 23. And I want you to notice, at the end of that, in verse 21, 
Jesus adds, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is, is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. You can imagine it's typical, normal, shocking news, and a discussion arises. But soon, somehow, the discussion turns to another matter, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. This is a theme that has come up earlier in Jesus' ministry. What a table conversation that must have been, (laughs) right? It's funny that this very sobering reality that one of them who are now in this very intimate setting with the Lord is actually going to betray him. But somehow the human heart turns that around and says, okay, well, one of you guys is going to be this sort of spiritual loser, right? But which one of us will be the greatest? Right? We have a tendency to do that in our pride. I think this is important to note because I think it partially fuels how Peter responds to the Lord in this passage. So let's consider how did they get to this point where on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, they're thinking about who would be the greatest. I think there's some clues uh, throughout the Gospels, and a lot of this I've, I've taken from a book called The Cup and the Glory uh, from, by Dr. Harris, uh, which I would commend to you, especially if you're going through some significant trials and suffering. The Cup and the Glory. Why is it that they are fueled with this ambition to be the greatest? Why are they disputing about this? Well, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, The very next event after Peter's great confession and then Jesus calling them to deny themselves and take up their cross, that happens here in in Mark 8, but also here in Luke 9, verses 18 through 27. The very next event is the transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before them. Look at Luke 9, 28. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then, as you know, Peter has this strange response about building tabernacles, one for each of them. And at that point, a cloud came, verse 34, and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. Now, this, I think, is a pinnacle event beyond the other events that they had experienced up to this point in Jesus' ministry. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ of God. And now there is this supernatural, staggering, frightening event where he actually is transformed into his heavenly glory before them. No doubt, no doubt, this is fueling Peter's ideas of the kingdom. If you jump down to verse 43, the next day after they had seen his transfiguration, Jesus performs another miracle by um, casting out a a demon that they couldn't. Verse 43, and says, in light of that, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. 
But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Notice Luke's comment on that. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. They, they still don't understand that Christ's mission in his first coming was to die. Jesus does. He has already alluded to it uh, at several uh, points in his ministry, but they don't understand. Look at verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Right? Comes up here. After Jesus has just talked about what he would suffer, it comes up then again here on his final night. There's a couple other places where this kind of thoughts of greatness could have been bolstered. After Jesus confronts the rich young ruler and he leaves, Peter pipes up and says, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. This is Matthew 19, 27. And Jesus responds, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I think in their minds... Uh, in light of their expectations of the kingdom, these promises related to them sitting on 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel, in some sense, they latched onto without the understanding of the cross. Another occasion, Mark 10. James and John come to Jesus and they ask a special favor. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Again, this is after the transfiguration, right? This is what's on their minds. Another hint of this in Luke 19, just before our context. This is after Zacchaeus' conversion. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. All right? They bring that kind of misunderstanding into this setting here in Luke 22 and argue about who will be the greatest. And you can hardly blame them. Right? After all that they have seen, after all that the Old Testament prophets had promised, what's on their mind is the glory that Jesus just displayed to them. They've been with him three years now. He affirms this in some sense. Look at Luke twenty-two twenty-eight. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he tells Peter about his denial. It's a strange dynamic going on here. He is saying these truths to them, and they are true, and they will come to pass. And they understand in part that there's this huge glaring aspect missing in their understanding. In Matthew's Gospel, when James and John came and made that request to Jesus about sitting on his 
right hand and left hand in his kingdom, Matthew gives a fuller response of Christ and he actually adds, and I wonder if Matthew sort of chuckled when he added this uh, detail in his gospel, that it was their mother who came and asked the request, right? You, know, you can imagine sort of, go ask him, go ask him. I'm too scared, you ask him, Mom, right? She said to him, command that in your kingdom those these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. This is a, a wonderful part in that book I mentioned. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't understand what even the cup is. It's a cup of his suffering. And he assures that my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right hand and my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Before the kingdom, there is a cup. Jesus knew this full well, but they did not. And it seems to me that this is part of Peter's heart here in this response to Jesus. And also, Jesus will predict this again in Mark. And he responds more adamantly there. I think this is part of what's in his heart. Look at the first prediction. We read it, verses 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he says to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three, denied three times that you know me. And this sets the theme for this event. Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me. And Peter says, no, I won't, even to the death. There's a second prediction. If we turn to Mark 14. This was in that upper room on the heels of the Lord's Supper. And after... They had finished talking. It says they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. From where they were, it takes a while to get there. It's a good walk. And then Jesus will continue to walk into the more specific destination of the Garden of Gethsemane. And as you know, is where he prays fervently and then eventually is arrested. But in this walk, they converse more. And that's where Mark includes a second prediction of Jesus's, of Peter's denial. We jump in in verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So they're now in that transition. By the time we get to 32, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said to them, verse 27, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You will all fall away. And here, this is the idea of them abandoning their allegiance to Jesus. Though he says it's not permanent. And he foretells that this will happen to every one of the eleven. Judas is already gone. And this this, um, prediction is undergirded by Scripture itself. He says you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And here Jesus is quoting from Zechariah 13.7. 
This verse is part of a larger section of Zechariah that is just full of messianic promises, even related to Christ's uh, first coming and also his second coming. Zechariah chapters 9 through 13, really. And also, of course, this sort of rejection and abandonment by Christ is foreshadowed in Isaiah 53. Jesus knows full well what is going to happen to him, and it's a fulfillment of Scripture. The cross comes as no surprise to Jesus. He knew the mission God gave him. He had made it clear throughout his ministry. Luke 22, 22, while they were eating. Earlier that night, John 13, 18, he prophesies about being betrayed by Judas. Jesus knows they will forsake him. And he promises their restoration. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now, thus far, this is probably the clearest and strongest statements about his bodily resurrection. He has said, I will be raised again from the dead. But at this point now, he says, I'll be raised again from the dead and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. It says something more about how immediate that will be. He will see them in Galilee and in fact, get there before them. There's tons implied in that statement. And what Jesus predicts here is clear about their abandoning him. It's authoritative, authoritative and it's rooted in Scripture itself. And you would think that that would leave them kind of quiet, right? Maybe a little bit stunned and pensive, worried, fearful, thinking that, I don't want that to happen. But if Jesus said it would happen, if Scripture says it would happen, just stunned. But Peter pipes up here. Verse 29, But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Peter said, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And again, this is the second time, I believe, chronologically, when Jesus tells Peter that this is going to happen. And Peter's response here, I think, demonstrates a kind of self-reliant spiritual pride that has developed in his heart. I just want to key in on verse 29 and, and note a couple elements of this pride. First of all, Peter himself takes the initiative to say, all of these other guys might fall away, but not me. One of the marks of pride and spiritual pride is that it's competitive. It's competitive. And what Peter means here is like, okay, Jesus, maybe you're telling the truth about the other ten. Maybe they'll fall away, but I am not your average disciple. I'm better than them. Right? That's what he's saying. And no doubt in his heart, there's a love for Jesus at this point. Peter had walked with him for three years. He had been humbled throughout that time. He had committed his allegiance to Christ. We remember from John 6 that Jesus, uh, Peter says to him, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. People had left. He had stayed. He was a committed follower of Christ. But there is still mingled there in his heart this large dose of spiritual pride. And his self is still vying for first place in his heart. 
we can easily drift into spiritual pride in the church. Easily. Easily. Romans 15.1 says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Right? When we're strong or we feel strong spiritually, if that continues into love, then that's okay. But if it continues into self-reliant pride and comparing ourselves with others and being competitive, then it's pride. True spiritual strength always, always uses that strength to care for, to love on, and to build others up. And it's never for personal gain. There is such a terrible trap in American evangelicalism today for ministry to be about personal gain. It would have been absolutely ridiculous to the early church. Absolutely. You think about how Paul describes his ministry, right? And how much suffering he went through in his ministry. You think about how the Corinthian church treated him, right? At one point they were criticizing Paul's like appearance. Can you imagine criticizing the Apostle Paul on his appearance, saying, well, you're not really cut out, you don't really measure up to be ministering to us here at Corinth because of how you look. It's just foreign. We have celebrity pastors that abound these days. And I think even now, in this sort of decade, people think that entertaining preaching is good preaching. It's not. One day they're going to have to give an account for how they led the church and what they implied about the nature of the church by making it about entertainment and making it about them, right? Making it about uh, their media platform and social sort of platform on YouTube or you know, Snapchat or whatever, right? That is foreign to New Testament Christianity. There are generations of churches that have been persecuted. They would just wonder if that's Christianity at all. There's a necessary a necessary incarnate presentation of the Gospel that looks like Christ. And it's necessary. Jesus makes it necessary at times for those who represent the truth of God's Word to suffer so that if, as they minister the Word in suffering, it is like Jesus who ministered God's grace as He suffered, right? I'm not gaining anything from the world and personally from this. This is to give. Spiritual pride is competitive. Another element here that comes out in Peter's pride, that it's unteachable. Spiritual pride is unteachable. Jesus is very emphatic in verse 30. Peter says, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him. So this is now the second and more pointed thing being stated specifically to Peter. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. There are five points of emphasis in that statement so that Peter gets it, so that he's convinced of it. Five points of emphasis. First, Jesus says, truly I say to you, is a phrase common of Christ when he's pronouncing something to his disciples that they are to absolutely remember as unmistakably true. He does it all throughout his ministry. Second, he says, this very night you will deny me. Which is saying that, Peter, you're saying these words, but you have got to realize that 
they don't amount to anything because actually this night you're going to betray me. Third point of emphasis. He says, before a rooster crows twice. In other words, it's around midnight at this point. We won't even see the light of day until you've abandoned me. And this obviously becomes something that sticks in Peter's mind about this rooster crowing, which we'll see in a moment. Fourth, there is an emphasis here in the words, you yourself. He says, truly I say to you, you yourself will deny me three times. Never mind these other 11 disciples, but you yourself will do this, Peter. And then fifth, this will happen three times. Unlike them, you will explicitly three times, one after another, deny that you know me. Jesus could not be more clear. And you think at this point that Peter might stop and listen. But he doesn't. Verse 31, Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. See that insistently there? This is a very strong term. It's almost as if in the conversation, in the back and forth, Jesus said, you will all fall away. Peter says, not me, Lord. Jesus says, no, seriously. Seriously, three times you will. You yourself will. And Peter is still not having it. He insists, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I can go the distance. There's no way, Lord. There's no way that I will deny you. It's not going to happen. I am so committed to you that I'll even die with you. He doesn't listen. And spiritual pride can be that way. It is unteachable. And it's also blind. It's also blind. Not only does Peter not believe he's capable of this, he thinks he is so strong that he can go the distance, even if I have to die with you. And he cannot see where his heart really is. He just cannot see it. And I honestly think that Peter believes this about himself. This was not a a sober, true self-appraisal. And Peter was blinded to the true reality of his heart. Very sincere, but very faulty. He was blind. We have this running joke in our home. My wife is very good at organizing the home and sometimes uh, changes that organization without notice. So sometimes I can't find things, you know, like spices or flour or silverware or medicine, or something like that. And so we have this running joke where I'll go look for something, and I'm rummaging through everything, and I'll say, Julie, where's the Advil? And she'll say, it's right in the medicine cabinet, second shelf on the left. And I'm looking at the medicine cabinet, and I've just been looking for five minutes, and I don't see the Advil. And I say, it's not, and then then I see it's right there. (laughs) It's right there. It happens over and over. I don't see it. It's like I'm blind to it. Um, it's there, there's this blind spot, and I'm convinced that it's not. Pride, spiritual pride, blinds us to our own weaknesses and makes us think more highly of ourselves than we should. The epistles warn us against this, as does Proverbs. Romans 12.3, Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Galatians 6.3 If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. 
1 Corinthians 10.12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Proverbs 26.12, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for, uh, for a fool than for him. Spiritual pride can, can blind us. Spiritual pride is competitive. Spiritual pride is unteachable. And Peter just could not see the devastation that would come in just a few hours. What's this prediction really all about? In Luke 22, Jesus just drops this in the conversation for Peter, right? They're talking about who's the greatest. Jesus tells them greatness in his kingdom is is not what they're thinking. And then he just tells Peter, this is what's going to happen. And then a second time he tells him, and it's very clear both times there is this huge gap between Peter's understanding of himself and what Jesus knows and understands about him. And it highlights for us that in this process of discipleship, Jesus knows our hearts and he knows our future better than we do ourselves. Way better. Way better. He is telling Peter that he doesn't have to tell Peter this is going to happen, but he tells him in advance. Jesus wants Peter to see his heart for what it really is. Sometimes God is doing that in our lives, will do that in our lives. Bring us through things that are extremely painful so that he can show us this. And sometimes we don't know it. We have a good group of teens in our church, and when I first arrived at the church a couple years ago, I had about eight of them that wanted to get baptized. That's wonderful, you know, that's wonderful. But it became clear to me that it was somewhat of a church tradition that when summer came around, there was an opportunity to get baptized in a lake. It's a nice setting. When you got to be a teenager, you kind of did that. So it had turned into somewhat of a tradition in our church. And we had about eight kids that wanted to get baptized in the summer in the lake. I said, okay. So I said, share with me your salvation testimony. And one by one, as they shared, it was clear that this process hadn't happened yet. They were really good kids. Really good church kids. They shared with me their testimony, related a little bit about a Bible story and their response and someone helping them in a prayer. Nothing about sin. Nothing about the sin in their own heart. What they needed to turn from. What they needed grace for. Nothing. So, there's this dilemma, right? This is so essential to following Christ. And they just either hadn't taken stock of it or really were not seeing it. So we had a, a, a few classes on the nature of sin and it abiding in our hearts. And I encourage them, go back and I want you to think about what's going on in your heart. Um, why did you come to Christ if you're not that bad of a sinner? Right? It's essential as disciples that we are able to see the sin in our heart, and a lot of times we we don't know it as well as Christ does, and he wants us to. Well, as you know, Peter does deny Christ, and Jesus, of course, was right. And he doesn't just deny him once, but three times. And we can turn back to Luke 22 to see that. Jesus is arrested, it says, in Luke 22, 54. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest 
But Peter was following at a distance. And we see even there some of the reluctance and the, and the fear. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. Now, Jesus is in the first phase of, um, or the second phase of his Jewish trial. John 18 records uh, the first, and this was the main one that had the most significance. After this, he is going to be brought before Pilate to be sentenced to death because the Jews didn't have the authority to do that. But they did have the authority to, a char- to charge him with something in order to bring him to Pilate, and that's what's happening here. He's inside of a courtroom. Peter is out in the outer courtyard. And it says that Peter was sitting among them. And then verse 56, And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with them for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And it says immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And this detail Luke adds, the other Gospels don't include this, but he says, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Now as I imagine this scene, and I've done some research to try and figure out what this sort of building was like and this courtyard was like. There was probably an outer door to the court courtyard that Peter was able to get into. And I think some have said that it's because John had a connection there or something. He was able to get in. Peter is out there and it's dark and there's a fire and obviously he's trying to remain discreet and unnoticed. But there must have been some kind of a entryway into the inner room where Jesus was tried and perhaps a window or perhaps a window in a door. And Jesus, at this moment, the rooster crows, turns and looks at Peter. There are three elements here that strike Peter to the core. One is the Lord's look. The second is what he hears from the rooster. And the the third is that Jesus had predicted this and told him. Notice verse 61 again. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I'm walking with a couple for premarital counseling right now, and we just had our session on communication, right, which is really important for marriage. And there's a section what they study on nonverbal communication, body language, right? And in marriage, you know how sophisticated you can get at understanding each other's body language, right? Uh, your posture, um, your lack of verbal communication can communicate a lot, right? But also the way that we look at one another. You know, we have this close relationship over a long, lot lot of time, and certain looks convey certain things, right? I think this is the same dynamic that's going on with Jesus and Peter. The Lord looked at him. The Lord looked at him. I wonder if in our deepest moments of failure, what that would be like. For Jesus to look at us. Verse 62, it says, He went out and wept bitterly. He went out and wept bitterly. One of the things I think about this study that first struck me was all of this, all of this is in the Gospels, and its seed form originally was 
just orally taught to the churches by the apostles. So here is Peter's massive failure, and it's public, totally public, even in the early church. I wonder at the wisdom of Jesus in this. To know in advance, or even to sovereignly somehow orchestrate with the Father, this rooster crow. Right? The second one, Mark tells us, at this very moment. And also to know exactly where he will be in this vicinity and where Peter will be to make this glance that was so loaded with significance. Right? In order for Peter to be absolutely devastated. This is his low, low point. Jesus orchestrates this whole part of Peter's discipleship to bring him to this point, right? And he's to be the rock upon which I will build my church, right? And he gets to this low, low, devastating point of failure known by all the early church and that's part of him being, being the rock. Right? It's part of him being the rock. And this is essential for us as well, I believe. I think this is essential for our sanctification and for our discipleship. It's somewhat of a facade to put on a mask, right, and be hypocritical as a Christian. Jesus warns us against that. There's a kind of freeing transparency in humility when people know how we struggle and how we fail. We're encouraged to walk in the light, right? As He is in the light, so that the blood of Jesus, His Son, can cleanse us from all sin. And in 1 John there, he makes clear, he's not writing these things so that we'll continue in sin. He's writing them so that we may not sin. But when we sin, to know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. There's to be a transparency and humility that goes along with being a disciple of Christ. Sometimes he has to produce this in us by showing us the depth of our own sin. Peter starts off boasting in this, in this scene, in this night. Even though all may fall away, I won't fall away, Lord. When we follow Christ, there is really only place for boasting in one thing, and that's in him. The gospel itself excludes boasting. Paul says this in Romans 3. He says, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All of my righteousness has been granted to me by faith in Christ. And then Paul says, Where then is boasting? He says it's excluded. Ephesians 2.89, the same thing. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no place for boasting in ourselves. Peter's example here is both a warning for us to take, uh, if we think we stand, to take heed lest we fall. But also this sets up for the church Peter as an absolute trophy and token of God's grace. This is why Peter is central to the future church. This is why I think Peter taught these things to the early church and conveyed them to Mark when he wrote them in his gospel is so that every disciple would know there is a, 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 a bad sense of self-serving depravity in each and every heart. 
And I will uproot that and I will expose that and you will need to be dependent upon my grace and grace alone. Peter is a perfect example of that. But he has to come to this deep place of failure, I think, for Christ to demonstrate his grace fully. Jesus predicts this. He sovereignly orchestrates using Peter's innate sinful pride to bring him to this point as a necessity. This is the rock here. Very much broken in this point of humility. It is a colossal failure. It's public. It's written on the pages of Scripture. But it's so that we can see Jesus restore him. And that's what we'll see in John 21. Jesus is going to restore Peter utterly. It might be good tonight in, in preparation for tomorrow to think through what, what is going through Peter's mind between this look of Christ and John 21. There's a, there's a time gap there. He, he sees him after he's resurrected. He appears to the, the 12 or the 11 um, on two occasions. We know that. There is a, another appearance to Peter that's alluded to but not described. But John 21 is when he first, I think, fully interacts with Jesus in light of his denial. What was Peter thinking after this, especially as Jesus hung on the cross? What was Peter thinking when he was put in the tomb? What was Peter thinking on that, on that Saturday in light of what he had done? This can be a hard part of deeper discipleship, but it's necessary. And the good news is that Jesus, Jesus has a plan, right? This is only the beginning for Peter. And he is going to restore him to ministry. And then he's going to empower him to do it and fulfill his calling as a rock. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And what many of us here this evening, I imagine, have gone through things like this. Of deep disappointments in themselves and deep points of failure or lack of faith in you. Deep struggles through trials. Confusion, feeling perplexed, frustrated. Lord, you draw those things out of our heart through what we go through. And Lord, thank you that you are a master surgeon, that you cut and you prune, but you also heal and restore. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be sobered by Peter's example and humble as well. And Lord, thank you that where we are faithless, faithless you are faithful, and that you will complete the good work you've started in us. Lord, help us to put on humility, to not think so highly of ourselves to think soberly, and also, Lord, to serve and build up others. We thank you for this, this great example that's on display here for us in your word. Help us to learn from it, Lord, and thank you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.